Architects and AEC professionals, it's time to connect, grow, and redefine your professional journey. Imagine a place where you're part of a vibrant community, accessing resources tailored to your needs, and earning continuing education credits effortlessly. That place is here at Gable Media. Join our legacy membership, your exclusive pass to a world of opportunities. With instant access to all our CE courses and groundbreaking content, you're set to excel. And here's the game changer. Lock in your legacy membership at an unbeatable introductory price of just $29 per year, forever. Plus, enjoy contests, events, and unique freebies. But hurry, I hear this special pricing won't last long. Spots in our legacy membership are limited and filling up fast. Follow the link in the show notes to be part of something groundbreaking with Gable Media. Patrick, you and I met with the number two guy in Wells Fargo. We went to his office, you know, right down the street from the, our office. Yeah, they were good people. Uh, and, but we got off on the right foot, Bob. We were good customers. We were a good customer. We, we were more interested in saving and investing money uh, through them than we were in borrowing. Right. And banks love that, even though they're in right. business to borrow. They just like to have a lot of money around. Uh, I get very nervous when we use our line of credit, for especially for bad operations, because uh, once that line is gone, um, it's a, it's a it's a bitch. You you can go your head in your hand to have them extend more credit, but uh, it's not something that they favorably look upon. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I'm joined by Patrick McLaney, FAIA and former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. This is Build Smart. Patrick shares stories from his remarkable 50-year career at HOK, rising from junior designer to CEO of the company. With themes of leadership, finance, people, culture, and so much more, you'll find that there's a lesson in every episode. Welcome back to build smart. If you're following along with the story, you've now heard about a period of transition at HOK where the firm has experienced the unexpected passing of one founder and another founder has aged out of leadership, all during a time of rapid growth and evolving structure within each of the firm's offices and early signs of financial woes. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the episodes in order to hear Patrick's full story and insights into how to design a world-class architecture firm. In today's episode, Patrick discusses the introduction of investors into HOK, and he touches on the right way and the wrong way to grow Why a firm. Why did HOK need an outside investor? Well, that's a key question of the whole history of the firm. If you'll remember, Obata was the last of the remaining founders. George Helmuth had retired some years before, and George Kazabom sadly, had died suddenly. The three founders had a provision, one last provision, in the stock plan that they organized for themselves and for the firm. And that provision was that the sole remaining founder, in this case, Obata, had the right to buy enough stock to control the firm so that the sole remaining founder would not be at the mercy of those who come after and maybe it would have been not to his liking. So Obata bought enough of Kassebaum's stock 
to own actually 52% of HOK. And it was a good thing because he could, he then had a free hand to lead the firm in any way he chose. But it, it gave us a great big problem that 10 years later, when Obata would have reached age 70, we needed to have a lot of capital to buy out his stock. And as that time drew near, they didn't have enough money. By then, they had a CFO, Bob Pratzel. Bob Pratzel explained to them, and later to me, I think it's a great lesson for any architect. How do you raise money if you need money for some future event? Well, there are three ways. The longest term way to do it, but the surest way is to keep some of your profits from each year and put them in a bank or a kitty and build up an account so that you have strategic money for later. Well, HOK did not do that. Most firms, I dare say, do not do that. Well, if you haven't saved money, how else can you get money for a big event like paying off a retiring owner? There are only two other ways, as Pratzel explained. One is to borrow it from a bank, and uh, that would have been possible. And HOK was on good terms with the local bank in St. Louis. However, banks don't lend money without strings attached, and those strings are called bank covenants, and they can be onerous and difficult. And banks uh, are not very patient. Uh, they expect you to start paying that loan back immediately. And if you cannot, then it gets very, very difficult. The other way is to bring in an outside investor who invests in the company by bringing cash and buying a, a chunk of HOK stock. And then an investor is not like a bank. They don't require interest payments, but they do have expectations that their investment will grow. Well, how? By having the firm grow and become more valuable so the stock value goes up. Patrick met with Bob Pratzel, former CFO of HOK, to discuss some of his financial concepts and his perspective of being the CFO of the firm during this period. Uh, I think realistically, it was certainly the profitability of the firm was, was extremely important. But uh, the other thing that I think we've, do, we've done a better job at than 95% of our competitors, and that is we've got a, an ownership transition program that not only generated capital, but uh, also established uh, a broader base of shareholders in, in HOK, which uh, helped uh, immeasurably achieve uh, more of a one-firm attitude, which was something that uh, was very important. Uh, so uh, our stock program, our operations, and uh, the third thing, well, I will not say that the Kajibut transaction was the smartest thing we've ever done. It was fine. We did it primarily to enable our main shareholder, Dio Obata, at the time with a, a significant markup in his stock based upon the sales price we made to the Kajibut people. As the time grew near for Obata's retirement, Jerry Sinkoff, who was really the business brains of the three, after consulting with Pratzel, decided the only real good way, uh, because it was too late in the day to earn enough profit and set aside enough profit to buy out Obata. So he decided he had to go to the outside investor route after investigating the bank route. And through a bunch of really good circumstances, Gio Obata met the president of Kojima, which is a big contractor in Japan. Turns out that they met at a conference at Harvard 
and hit it off. They liked each other. And Gio asked Mr. Kojima, would you be interested in buying a piece of HOK? They were interested. Uh, our our buy-sell agreement with our shareholders is basically a book value per share payment for the stock. And uh, Gio, who was so instrumental in, in forming HOK, uh, was not satisfied with that as his, as his payoff. That's what led us to uh, talking to Kajima. Because Kajima basically was offering us a, a value that was comparable to going public. And uh, we did that deal, and, and Gio got his significant write up on his stock. And we, we took a deduction for his, his payoff that, that was significant. And by, by the way, I, I failed to mention this. Uh, there's, there's another source of capital that no one above the controllable profit line really concerns themselves with it because it's, it's mainly finance guys. And that is the clever tax planning we did. We paid Gio for his SERP. He had the right to receive a, an ever-increasing annual payment. And, uh, and you know, he's still living. He's 98. He's, he's 98. That's unbelievable. He's unbelievable. But uh, we talked to him and his lawyer, and somehow we talked him into taking a lump sum payment. And um, uh, the other thing we did was uh, uh, with Bob Stouter and Jerry Sinkoff, we designated a big chunk of their stock payment, the portion over book value as a consulting fee. And uh, so that made it deductible. And uh, that, that was real money. Our, our net worth. It's not that great that uh, these, these things are, uh, are significant. And I'm very proud of the fact that I talked to CFOs at, at the round table. I'd say very few of them are as organized and have as good expertise in the financial area as, as we do. Well, why would they be interested in buying an architectural firm? Well, because Kojima had grown mostly in Japan, but knew that to fuel further growth, they had to expand outside of Japan in Europe, Asia, and the United States. And they saw HOK as a perfect vehicle to introduce them to clients in the U.S. So they were a willing investor. So after a, a series of negotiations, Kojima lent HOK a sum that was enough to accomplish two purposes, not just one, because Sinkoff, looking ahead to Gio's retirement, said, well, in addition to buying out Gio, HOK needed to have money to grow, to grow the business. He wanted to turn HOK from a good national firm into a great world-class firm. That was his goal. And he believed that in order to accomplish that, we needed to grow even though we were by then a, a large firm. So uh, the arrangement was made. Kojima put this money into our bank account. They immediately got a seat on our board of directors and we had a new partner. And it was unfamiliar for both of us, the Kojima people and us, to have someone from another country, another culture, another language sitting on our board. And actually they didn't try to guide the firm. We were lucky. They didn't try to tell us how to run our business. They said, look, we're contractors. You are architects. 
we don't want to tell you how to practice architecture. So they were passive in that sense. What they did want is for us to introduce them to U.S. clients, which we did, but actually most of that didn't work too well. Culturally, they were so different. We had U.S. clients saying, well, why would I use a Japanese contractor to do my next building when I've got relationships, good relationships with American U.S. contractors that I've worked with for years? And why would I struggle with language and culture when it's just as easy to call up Joe at the the contractor that I know and work with Joe. So the strategic value of having us introduce Kojima to U.S. clients quickly became clear that it was not a good strategy. So suddenly, HOK had all this capital to work with. What did the firm do with all that money? Well, Sinkoff, and by the way, it was wonderful to have actual money in the bank. I advise that for any firm, not necessarily getting it the way HOK did. But Sinkoff first put aside enough money to retire Gio, who was going to retire at age 70 in a year or two from when the Kojima transaction took place. And then he developed a strategy to grow the firm, uh, especially with emphasis on international growth. Jerry believed that HOK could transform itself from a good national firm with a good reputation to an international firm with a stellar reputation if we just invested in the right expansion in Europe and Asia. So as I understand it, HOK used the Kojima money not just to change where it did business, but also how it did business. Could you explain that? Yes. First, let me talk about where. Jerry and uh, the executive team picked two of us, Larry Self, and, uh, who was in Dallas at the time, and me. Larry had become very interested in HOK Europe as an idea. And I remember Larry brought maps and diagrams of the common market, the EU, uh, to board meetings and said, you know, the EU is roughly the same geographic size as the USA. It's roughly got the same kind of an economy. And it's got roughly the same number of people, actually a few more. And so we have these offices scattered around the US. We should do the same thing in Europe. Superficially, it made sense. So Larry was dispatched off to Europe, lived in London for a a while, and Larry began opening offices in Europe by making arrangements with local architects or just setting up marketing offices. In Berlin, we, we had an office, and in Moscow, because by then the Soviet Union had collapsed and so on. I think there were a total of five offices for a period of time in Europe. Jerry also was interested in, and Kojima encouraged HOK to open an office in Tokyo. They said, you know, we can help you get work in Japan because we know everybody. And it will be a a good thing, almost a novelty to have a U.S. architect design buildings for clients in Japan. So we agreed. And I took the first trip with Jerry Sinkoff to go meet Kojima in Japan, learned all kinds of new things. I had not been to Japan before. I had been to Hong Kong but not Japan. And uh, I liked what I saw. But Tokyo was an immense city, 25 million people or so in the greater Tokyo area. Tokyo had the, the sprawl of LA, but the density almost of Manhattan. That's, that's my description of it. But it was there that I learned to eat sushi <laughs> and uh, learned the rudiments of a few Japanese words that were polite 
Ohio Gazimus for good morning and so on. And uh, our Kojima hosts took us to dinner every night that we were there. And uh, once they saw that we could handle chopsticks, I'd learned that in San Francisco at Chinese restaurants. Sure. Then they started plying us with sushi. And I found that I liked sushi. I liked the basics of sushi very much. Then they started to ply us with unusual sushi dishes <laughs> to see how much they could get uh, us to eat. I remember once we went to a restaurant that they had a table with a little stream in the middle of it with minnows swimming in the stream and gave each of us chopsticks to see if we could catch a minnow and then put it in our mouths and swallow it with a beer chaser, I might add. And uh, you couldn't taste anything, but they said, well, it's for the texture of the, the fish wiggling on its way down your esophagus. So did you do that? I did do that, but I couldn't catch it with chopsticks. <laughs> Finally, the waitresses came over and gave me a little net with a handle. And I was able to finally catch one with a net. But then I took it out of the net with the chopsticks and they're slippery. And the first time it slipped away from me, but I finally got it into my mouth. He said, you know, when you're doing something like that, the Japanese use dining together and having a drink together between each course as a bonding exercise. So we had to learn all of that. We had to learn sitting on cushions on the floor and taking our shoes off when we enter a house or a restaurant. Uh, I learned all of that and I turned, I loved it. I wasn't really thrilled about the live minnow, but I did it because, well, everybody else did it and they were all looking to see if the, the big foreigner would actually do this, but I did. And I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed, I, I, I became a real fan of Japanese culture and there's a tradition of great craftsmanship that started with the carpentry that they used for their wooden temples that has carried through now to the bricks and mortar and the steel and the glass of their modern architecture. So Japanese architecture, just well-crafted. Uh, and I had an appreciation for that as well. So how did uh, HOK Tokyo turn out? Well, we actually opened a small office and we did really well for a while. We ended up designing a new headquarters for the Tokyo Telecom Center. That's the, the trunk line that basically connected Japan with the rest of the world. We designed a couple of airports, notably one in Sendai in northern Japan, where Gyo Obata's parents came from. And uh, really proud of the fact that some years after that airport was completed, there was a huge earthquake in the Sendai area. And uh, a big tidal wave swept up and destroyed a lot of that town. And actually, it swept through the airport as well. But after the water receded, after a few minutes, the airport quickly got back into operation and was actually able to serve as a center for evacuation and for delivery of emergency supplies and so on for that region. So we were proud of that. And the office in Tokyo did well until the Japanese economy collapsed in the decade of the 90s. They, they called it the, the lost decade. The economy of Japan just collapsed. The stock market collapsed. It went from I don't remember the numbers exactly, but something like their equivalent of the Dow Jones went from something like 30,000 to 3,000, just a terrific blow. And uh, people stopped building. And if they did build anything, they weren't going to use American architects. So after that period of time, 
we finally closed our office in Tokyo. So how did you do business differently with the Kojima money? When we uh, first got the money, Jerry called the board of directors together in St. Louis, and we had a work session for a day, uh, brainstorming ideas for how to, how to use the money. And there were all kinds of wacky ideas that came out of it. Somebody said, you know, we should start a construction firm because they, they actually get a lot bigger fees than architects do for building buildings. Somebody else said, well, I think we should uh, buy some big engineering firms and get big, big time into the engineering business. And other, others were more measured and they said, well, no, we should continue to expand in design specialties like sports architecture or healthcare architecture. That all actually changed when the board had dinner that evening. Uh, Gio had a personal relationship with a client of his, Dr. Peter Raven, who ran the St. Louis Botanical Gardens. And Peter Raven was a world famous uh, scientist. He was a botanist by background, but he, he was a, an early proponent of ecology and how delicate the ecology of planet Earth is. Dr. Raven stood up and without notes, spoke for maybe an hour and started with the biggest picture he could draw for us. Imagine the Earth is this great big round ball and all living things on it are existing in this little layer on the surface, a few meters below the surface and a few meters above the surface, all the things that are alive and we're all interconnected. Plants need animals and animals need plants. Then after building that picture, he said that humanity has exploded across the planet and that people are destroying the nature that they live in at an alarming rate. And that a big part of it is not just the automobile and uh, the pollution that's put into the air by cars and trucks and trains, but buildings, architecture. So he challenged us, he said, why should you design buildings that don't respect the nature? Why should you design buildings that are energy hogs that take up so much energy when all around you, you see plants and animals that are very efficient at how they're using or consuming energy to grow or develop and so on. And he said, why can't your buildings be more like nature when they reach the end of their useful life, just like plants and animals? Why can't they be recycled, go back to nature so that they can be reused again in a new way? And the board was mesmerized by Raven. Of course, by then we had heard about sustainable design, but it wasn't really in vogue. We had also heard that buildings should be designed to be energy efficient and HOK was already a leader in designing buildings that were, that, that sipped energy instead of guzzled energy but we had never had anyone put it together like this for us. And in particular, my partner in San Francisco, Bill Valentine, who was also on the board, Bill was the designated successor to Gio Obata. The idea caught fire with Bill Valentine. In previous episodes, you heard from Patrick's colleague, Bill Valentine, former CEO of HOK. In their conversation, Patrick and Bill reminisced about the meeting with Dr. Raven. The thing about uh, Peter Raven was that he came down on the side of efficiency is everything. It really registered with me, and I, I began to put 
two and two together in the sense of thinking if efficiency is everything in the sense of sustainable design and if efficiency is or should be it mostly is really important to our clients that you could actually get those two things together and really be helpful and i think it turned out to be true parenthetically it was a great business model to get a lot of good business because architects don't frequently say that actually at least in my opinion interestingly Bill's upbringing may have framed the thought process that led him to connect the dots on sustainability. Honest beginnings, different kinds. I grew up in a little industrial town in the Midwest, and you grew up in a little farm town in eastern North Carolina. Yeah, exactly. I grew up in a farm town when I was there. The uh, the population was 3,011. I remember it specifically from the 1950 census. <laughs> and uh, even today in that farm town, the average family income is just a little over 20,000 bucks a year. It's really, uh, to call it modest income would be an understatement. So Bill, I think that because of your upbringing, and you, you always called it being at the edge of poor, Right. You didn't want to waste anything. <laughs> That's right. And it, it led you right into sustainable design big time. You didn't want to waste buildings uh, by making them too grand or too big. You wanted them to fit the client's program and so on. Well, it's definitely true. You know, I grew up in a waste, not want, not family primarily because it had to be. And thank goodness I got that lesson of waste, not want, not drilled into me. So, you know, in, uh, in HOK, I think one of the things that really helped along in my career is that when we'd have a client, Patrick and I both worked directly with a whole lot of clients, but my real thing was, man, don't waste that client's money. They've, they've come at that, they've really gone to a lot of trouble to get this money amassed to do a project and don't waste one single dollar of that. And first of all, I, I don't know if you'd agree with this, Patrick, I bet you would, but I think most clients who've dealt with architects would think, well, well that's unusual for an architect to say. <laughs> uh, it, unfortunately, it, it shouldn't be unusual. Uh, in fact, Patrick, I don't know if you remember this, but when we were, did the uh, Calsters headquarters in Sacramento, Calsters, California State Teachers Retirement Association, and uh, we were talking about things they wanted to do. And I said, gosh, you know, I don't want to waste one dollar of this. These teachers have worked really hard to put all this money in Calsters and it was just wrong if we don't very judiciously use every single dollar. And the, the CFO, who is a really nice lady said, hey, hey Bill, uh, you know, we have a lot more money than you think we do. <laughs> <laughs> Through his buy-in and commitment to this concept, Bill helped HOK step forward as a leader in sustainability. What I remember, Bill, is that you were our sustainability leader you were the proselytizer. You were the one that went around to the offices and gave lectures to people in the firm and said, we, we must do this. This is really important. It's good for the planet. It's good for the businesses, the clients, and it's good for us. Uh, that's totally true. And, you know, Patrick, I, I encourage HOK to think of sustainability in very basic terms, not in the super pie in the sky terms, but how to do really basic things that would actually be helpful and not cost too much. Again, with the idea that when something doesn't cost too much, it's headed to being sustainable on its own because you're using less stuff. That's it. 
Could you build a smaller building? Could you build a building that has less steel, that is more efficient? Could you use something more than the space in the building is the space in the land? Can you use the land wisely so that, you know, uh, excuse me for being an evangelist about this, but every foot we don't use wisely here in Marin County, where Patrick and I live, is another acre or two that's being taken up in farmland out in the valley when the land isn't used well. So we want to get the right density. We want to get people so they have just what they need, but not too much. So that dinner and that speech by Dr. Raven actually set HOK off in a new direction. We were still interested in growth and expansion, but it, it created a new layer that overlaid everything, which is we don't want to design buildings anymore or pieces of buildings that aren't really focused on being as sustainable uh, and as energy efficient as possible. And that idea took root in HOK. Bill was the main cheerleader, Bill Valentine. And that's that has continued on until this present day. And it's, it represented another opportunity that the firm took that we didn't expect because the world caught up to us and clients began to ask for sustainable architecture. And they, they began to ask about energy efficient architecture and so on. And we were prepared because we, by then, were real leaders in this area. I've always thought about that day that the board spent first blue skying how we should grow. And then that dinner with Dr. Raven changed everything. And one of the simplest things that I can do to describe what this means is we all know that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And in the northern hemisphere, the south side of the buildings always get sun and the north side don't. Well, why are our buildings too often all four sides look the same, assuming it's a four-sided building. And shouldn't they be different in response to nature, to, to the sun, which is the source of heat and light and warmth? So just that idea alone has given rise to a new appreciation for the building type and for the form of the building that's becoming more like nature and less like the architecture of let's say tradition or the modern movement or any movement in the past. So that was a transformative time. And uh, I don't remember what we had for dinner, but I sure remember that talk. <laughs> so it sounds like the Kojima money really uh, had affected many different layers of HOK. Um, it gave you a, the money to grow. It gave you the money to have this this meeting that had this presentation by Dr. Raven that really took HOK in a new direction. And it gave you the money to uh, allow Gio Abada to retire. Yes. Well, Gio's retirement was actually, once we had the money, Gio's retirement was straightforward. On the day he turned 70, he sold his stock back to HOK, just like any other shareholder. And HOK paid Gio how many shares times the, the value per share. So he got a big payday. And so we, we no longer had an owner that had more than half of the shares of stock. And that trend has continued. I think the, I was probably the last person in the leadership group when I stepped down to have more than 10% of the shares. When you do this properly, you finally spread the leadership out and you spread out the stock ownership so that no one person leaving is a great big chunk of money 
that's going to cause the firm to have to go through something special. So because Gio was one of those founding partners, it was set up that way from the beginning. So he he had his percentage paid to him so he could retire and then you could make some changes. Except, of course, knowing Gio, as we, all of us at HOK do, he, of course, did not retire. <laughs> right. He, he approached Jerry Sinkoff, who was the designated successor to Gio. He was going to, Jerry was going to be our new leader after Gio stepped down. And Jerry was going to be become a CEO, and we were going to be led by a CEO instead of a troika, although Jerry did create a troika of sorts. He, instead of calling it a, a leadership group, he called it an executive committee, which we quickly shortened to XCOM. But Gio uh, approached Jerry before he retired and said, Jerry, I don't think I'm really ready to retire, and I think I can help this firm continue to attract clients and, and to do good work if I can be a consultant. And Jerry said, well, okay, Gio, that's a good idea. Because Gio was, at age 70, Gio was still out playing tennis. He's an extraordinarily active man. Uh, Gio, as, as we're taping this podcast, is enjoying his 98th birthday. He's still in St. Louis. He still gets into the office occasionally. But So Gio signed this one-year consulting contract with HOK and came into the office the day after his retirement as if nothing had happened. And HOK paid him a nominal sum to be a consultant. And at the end of that first year of consulting, Gio came to Jerry again and said, Jerry, I'm still not ready to retire. So Jerry renewed the consulting agreement. That was renewed something like 25 times. <laughs> I think finally Gio gave up the consulting arrangements with HOK at something like age 95. But during that time, he did some extraordinary work and attracted some extraordinary clients. With Bill Valentine taking over the leadership for the design part of, of HOK, was there ever any conflict between Gio and Bill when Bill took the lead? No, there really wasn't. Um, Gio had picked Bill because Bill was so collaborative and agreeable. And Bill is a tenacious designer. If Bill is on a path of a good design, there's nothing going to keep him from it. The thing that did begin to change when Gio stepped down and Bill stepped up, Bill did not attempt to do what Gio had done, which is to get involved in the biggest and most important projects. Bill was content instead, and I think this is a good lesson, to find good designers and recruit them or grow them up in an office so that each office was represented by a good designer. When the firm is that large, it cannot possibly have the stamp of one person. So I think Bill was the transitional figure between Gio and the HOK of today of beginning to spread out that design responsibility and design load. And that people have said, and we say inside of HOK, we don't have a design style because we have different designers and the designs flow from not only careful listening to the client, but now this new overlay of sustainable design as first fostered by Dr. Raven. So HOK's work is not like you would see with a, a store architect where you can always recognize a style. HOK's work is quite diverse. 
which is the way we like it and which I personally believe is healthy. And we'll see in future episodes that the corporate structure changes pretty significantly for HOK after Gio retires. Before Gio did step down, though, he made one crucial and surprising hire. Who was that? And tell us that story. This is, this is the entrance of another Helmuth into the firm, Bill Helmuth. George Helmuth, again, was the founder, and he was the son of an, of an architect and the nephew of an architect back in the early 1900s. George Helmuth, the founder, had a brother who became estranged from the St. Louis Helmuth family and ended up living in Cleveland, Ohio. And that Helmuth, Ted Helmuth, uh, got married and had a son whose name was Bill. And the, the Ted Helmuth family and the George Helmuth family didn't speak. So Bill Helmuth, he knew about his St. Louis family, but didn't know anything about them. And Bill Helmuth grew up in Cleveland, got educated in the East, and went to work for where? SOM New York after he got after he graduated. And Bill was a designer. So I think that the architect genes in the Helmuth family are really strong. Yeah, because that's just all coincidence. It's, it's all coincidence. So Bill Helmuth had a career at SOM New York for a number of years, uh, eight or 10 years. Got to be a very good designer, but became impatient with the style of how long would he have to wait to become a real partner at SOM. So he began to look for other possibilities to work. And he met a mutual friend, a woman named Ann Cricken, who uh, was a consultant and it used to work for HOK actually. Wonderful years for me. I, I tell everyone that I'm at HOK by accident, which actually is true. The H in HOK, one of the three founders, he was my uncle, but I really didn't know him. My father died when I was about 10 years old. We lived in a different city and there was a rift between the families and no one spoke for a long time. Of course, by the time I came around, everyone had sort of forgotten about all of that. And that was that. But a friend of mine, when I was looking to uh, leave New York, uh, a friend of mine, was, who was also a very good friend of Gio's, got me together with Gio. So we talked about opportunities and so forth. And uh, I ended up joining HOK, moving from Manhattan to St. Louis, which you, know, you talk about culture shock. It's a huge, huge culture shock. And turned out to be a culture shock in a really good way. We loved the move. It was it was really terrific. We still have great friends from our days in St. Louis, uh, which weren't actually all that long. It was about a year and a half that we were there. But anyway, went out there and St. Louis has a lot of Helmuth relatives. And so you know, I imagined that uh, Helmuth relatives were just like my father, who was this Hollywood handsome man who died by the time he was 35. And I thought, okay, they'll look just like dad, only they'll be a few years older. By the time I got there, they were all well into their 70s and 80s and a little scabby and all this, but it was absolutely wonderful. They took us in and we had this whole family. You, you rarely get a chance to connect with family later in life. Uh, and this was it, was, it was really, really terrific. And, you know, Papa George, you know, I'd be on some idiotic plane flight to Jakarta working on a project and Papa George was... He would go to the nursery school and sit down on those tiny little chairs with the kids on the bring your father to school day. And he'd you know, have the kids all running around him and climbing all over him. So for all of us, that was, it was a really special time. Great being at HOK, but it was, it was really great uh, connecting with uh, all my Helmuth relatives. Bill Helmuth 
became a, a really favored designer of, of Gio's in St. Louis, did some very good work there, um, and would have stayed there, I think, happily for quite some years. But just before Gio stepped down, we had an opening in the in the HOK office in Washington, D.C. Gio knew that we had to replace the designer in Washington. So he asked Bill Helmuth, he called him into his office, he said, Bill, uh, we've got an issue in Washington, D.C. Could you go there tomorrow and fill in until we get the right person? But don't worry, I would never ask you to go there. So when Bill got to Washington, D.C. and he met some of the other principals in the office, they said, well, congratulations, Bill. We understand you're, you're our new partner. <laughs> it's, it's a humorous story now, but Bill became the managing, uh, the design principal, rather, in HOK Washington. And it was all because of this happenstance that the Helmuth got reinserted back into HOK, but not as a marketer this time, but as a designer and a very good one. What a great story. I, I love how Bill comes back from years of separation and the family comes together and the firm becomes this this thing that brings the two sides of the family back together and not only brings them together, but bonds them back as family again. Well, and, and instead of Papa George Helmuth hiring Bill Helmuth, it's Gio hiring a new designer who happens to be a Helmuth. Yeah. That's the irony of all this. So it's, it's a great story. Um, and it's been, that story has been told and retold inside of HOK for years. And of course, now it's in the book. Yeah. One of the many, many stories of HOK. So Patrick, we've had many, many lessons in this episode. What are the main lessons that we should be taking away from this one? Well, I think the first one is, going back to the beginning of this podcast, is you need to have money. You need to have capital, cash. And there are three ways to get it. The long, hard way which I believe is the best way is to earn it and put aside money every month. Uh, or uh, if you can't do that, or if you don't have the time to do that, you borrow it from a bank or you get an outside investor in. Both of those are perilous. You're not in charge of your own destiny if you do either one of those two alternatives. Yeah, with your the investment with Kojima went very well, but it did. very easily could have gone poorly. Yes, and uh, the, the architectural community is filled with stories about investors changing the culture, controlling the company in new ways, and causing companies to actually fail. Uh, so it's a perilous journey. We were lucky that Kojima were so uh, benevolent, and they were really kind to us. Uh, and there's, there's a couple more wrinkles in that that'll be in a later podcast, how that all finally worked its way out. But we are still good friends with the people from Kojima. So, so what, what are some more lessons? Yes. Well, the, the other is that there are right and wrong ways to grow. I haven't gotten into this as much as I will, but growing into Europe and seeing Europe as the same as the United States, they're not. Europe is a bunch of different countries with cultures, languages, and traditions of how buildings are designed and built. They even have their own different building codes. The right way to grow, I think, is to build an office on the work. And even in Japan, that office was successful until the Japanese economy collapsed. So uh, had the Japanese economy continued strong, I, I'm pretty sure we'd be there yet. And then finally, the third lesson is that 
don't throw away a talented person just because they reach a certain age. If they have an ability to continue to contribute to the firm and they have the strength and the energy, uh, give them a consulting role. Let them participate in the work without necessarily participating in the ownership of a firm. Think of all those years of experience that Guy Obata was able to bring forward and, and continue to, to serve clients uh, and do great design work. Uh, architects, especially designers, uh, gain in, in knowledge every year and experience, and they're capable of some of the very best work when they're up in years. If you just look at examples of Frank Lloyd Wright or uh, Mies van der Rohe or uh, you name it, a lot of the best work of architects is, is well into their 80s and 90s. So, and Gio was no exception to that. So don't throw that away. To continue the story, come back next week for the next episode of Build Smart, where Patrick will expand on the right and wrong ways of growing your firm and things begin to slowly unravel for HOK. Each office was organized as a template of the original founding office in St. Louis. They had a managing principle, a marketing principle, a design principle, and they stood on their own as far as fees and profits. So it was, a, I, I'm from Los Angeles, and if there's an airport in town, I want to do it. I don't want to have another office to an airport and leave me out of it. So there was a conflict with Jerry's idea that you'd somehow build a collaborative matrix where you would have groups like healthcare uh, working across the nation. So Jerry's idea was to do away with the HOK matrix where every office wants to duplicate the other and, and instead focus that uh, expertise in one or two offices, but have them join together. And we struggled with that through the rest of Jerry's tenure, I will tell you, uh, and a good deal of mine. That was a problem that didn't actually get solved until much later. And it's an interesting story of how we did it. Thank you for listening. To read along and see illustrations and personal photos that accompany this series, get Patrick's book, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm. I encourage you to go grab a copy today and follow along as we continue the story. It's available now at gablemedia.com slash buildsmartbook. This podcast is a Gable Media production and is produced by Demetrius Lynch Jr. Gable Media is the home of curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. You can listen in, subscribe, and find more content like this from our network partners at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, 
stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> I did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.